This is Cinema Degeneration. Okay, let's run. This is a snakeskin jacket. And for me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. I just got 50 cars for you in one night. All right, I'm a little tired, a little wired, and I think I deserve a little appreciation. That's one way of looking at it. The other is you get to keep 75% and not go to prison for the rest of your life. <laughs> hey, have you ever been dragged to the sidewalk and beaten until you pissed blood? I never just rode before gunfire. Yeah, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, do you have Y, Z, That's all you have to do! folks welcome once again to cinema degenerations brilliantly insane the age of cage and all nicholas cage podcast and we're going back to the depths of 1999 the dark dreary bleak dark depths of 1999 for the martin scorsese directed bringing out the dead probably one of the hardest watches that i've uh, had here in in recent months but you know not because i don't like the film but I'm just saying it's 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 a hard watch. It's a hard it's a hard sell for most people. But joining me this evening uh, for the festivities is my good buddy Daniel Goat. How are we doing? Doing really well, Cameron. Thank you again once more for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm always glad to have you on, man. You always bring a little, as you said earlier, a little extra flair to the things. But yeah, uh, we are doing yeah we were going back to the depths in 1999. We recently just reviewed Eight Millimeter, and it seems like. Uh, in 1999 things were taking a dark turn i don't i don't know what was happening maybe people were anticipating the apocalypse and they were just going on with all these dark stories but i've noticed there was a trend there in 99 for some dark bleak material and i'm all here for it but man this was a whoo this was a hard watch this was a, a hard watch there's a reason why i 
haven't watched this movie in about 10 years and uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you feel the same way about it, but it is some dark and bleak material, is it not? No, absolutely. And it does a really good job of um, padding the movie out with sort of a, a tense calm, like you're in the eye of a storm. And it only really like emphasizes those exclama- uh, exclamation points in a in few amount in the movie. And that means that they're so much more meaningful. So, yeah, bleak. And just like you said, the, at the end of the, the millennium, uh, 99, when you go digging, there's a lot of movies in that, in that three-year period, 98, 99, and 2000, that really started digging into more like um, psychosocial sort of uh, weird, how do you feel about this kind of thing? Like very uh, – what, what what would I call it? Like stuff that you would bring up to your therapist, like what you what you Ta- think of before you go to subjects. Sleep. Yeah, like it's hard to describe, but yeah, when, when you go digging, you, you get movies like this. But it's a you know, this is an underrated movie under Scorsese, and I'm glad that we're talking about it. Yeah, I I, I, can't, I can't believe that this movie was not more successful than it was. I mean, granted the the subject material, again, I'm just you know reiterating what I already said is super dark. But when this came out, it was not, uh, you know, it, it made $16.7 million against a budget of 32 So it made half its money back, which is just Well, this isn't astounding. a happy-go-lucky movie. I mean, th- this is for a, a particular demographic. Like, this isn't um, a feel-good, right-off-into-the-sunset ending. And also, because we're talking about a legendary filmmaker... I would say, I don't know if you'll agree with me, this is on the lower end of his spectrum of, of, of movies. But when you say that for someone like Scorsese, his lowest movie is probably better than a lot of other people's uh, yeah. directorial efforts. So yeah, it's Scorsese still, on, on, his, on his worst day is better than 99% of you know, the rest of us. Yeah, so that's just you know, my opinion. So. Well, before we get too deep into the movie and I do the IMDb synopsis and we get off into dissecting this piece, you are a first-time guest on this show. Not not on the Cinema Degeneration Network, but on uh, Brilliantly Insane, you are a first-time guest. So we have a bit of a questionnaire for you. And I know I kind of let you, led you in on what a couple of the questions might be, but there are five questions uh, all pertaining to Nicolas Cage. So are you ready? Uh, no, but go ahead. <laughs> All right. First question. What is the first movie that you ever saw with Nicolas Cage in it? Okay, so that was one that you led me into a few days ago. So instantly, Raising Arizona was was the answer that, that came to my mind. I feel – and again, it's hard when you try and think of your memories because you're really just thinking of the last time you thought of the memory. So you really don't know if your brain's playing tricks on you. But I would right. think that that – that is the first movie that I saw, and then obviously his effort with uh, with Cher, but I, I didn't like that movie. Um, but I, I would say Raising Arizona was the first movie I watched from start to finish, like completed it from the legendary Nicolas Cage. Good one. That, that's the same answer I've gotten from a few people thus far. It seems to be a good starting off point for, for Cage fans. Now, do you remember what was the question number two? Do you remember where you officially became 
a Nicolas Cage fan? Like, which movie was it that made you go realize, okay, this guy, you know, has got talent? Well, those are two different questions. He's always had talent, but it's kind of a weird, a weird flavor of talent. Um, I really want to say, because I mean, Con Air and Face Off came out in the same year, which is ridiculous. That factoid is like dumb. That both of those movies, which are basically <laughs> tent poles of his of his acting career, and also it, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who doesn't like one or both of those movies. Um, but I I feel like Face Off, and I may be wrong within the year, but Broken Arrow is one of my other favorite movies, um, and they came out around the same time, and you know I was plastered to either TNT or USA or all the other TV channels that were playing those kind of movies when they when they came out, you know, after they hit HBO or Showtime or whatever, and I really feel like Face Off was the first movie that I saw of him that I enjoyed but conair was right there so i can't really say like if it was one or the other but just those you know the characters that he portrayed in both of those movies it was just you know like some people <laughs> look up to like athletes or whatever be like oh i want to be like them when i grow up and it was just he was having fun like that was like a a visual example of someone enjoying what they're doing they're getting paid for it and they're it's a very cool character characters between both Conair and Face Off. So I'll I'll do both of those movies. Good, good good answer. Good answer. I love me some Face Off. I mean I I love Conair too, but there's something about Face Off that's just the craziness of the idea of, you know, John Travolta, Nicolas Cage, you know, switching faces in a movie is just like who who wrote that? Like I want I want to like dive into the guys who wrote that story. It was just like listen, <laughs> you know, and we honestly, got a crazy story for you. The movie is really old at this point. I mean, both of them, but Face Off still stands up because there's not a lot of that movie that is embedded into um, like handheld technology. Like a lot of times, phones, computers, tablets, TVs, that kind of date stuff, but. The really the the tech in Face Off is really the prison, which is kind of outlandish, but we sort of have some of that stuff now. And yeah, the, it's more sci-fi-ish in, in a way. The prisons sequences yeah, are, and then the um, the medical stuff, which is basically we do have people who have face transplants. Like you know, none of that is really like excessively ridiculous. Um, but I mean, you can watch that today and obviously some people within a different generation or a, a different mindset would roll their eyes, but still, still a really good movie. So, yeah. Yeah. And plus it has a cameo by Joe Bob Briggs in it. So how can you go wrong? <laughs> with that. Right, right. All right. This one might be a little easier. What is your favorite Nicolas Cage movie? Mm. Ooh, I stumped you. <laughs> well, it's kind of rough because and I'm going to I'm going to brown nose Nicolas Cage a little bit. It's there's a lot of people who um they just feel like they get typecast is not the right word, but they just they they feel comfortable in a hole and they never get out of that hole. Like they they make a lot of money being a certain character or they enjoy a specific type of plot and uh they feel comfortable with certain scripts that come to them where they tell their agent like, "Hey, I only want these kind of movies." And that's and that's fine, but like Nicolas Cage has done a lot of stuff. I mean, he's done comedy, he's done horror, 
He's done action. He's had thrillers. He's had dramas. He's had a period in his life where he took acting extremely seriously, like you know, wanting to have an Oscar or caring about awards. And then on the other end of the spectrum, he just wanted to have fun. He didn't care about the money. He just wanted to uh, play interesting characters, and that allowed him a little bit of freedom to like, you know, pick movies that maybe not everybody would would choose. Right, right. Some of his movies are absolute dog shit. I mean, excuse my French, but some of them I just I don't enjoy. But that's the great thing of having someone like him who has the ability to have those different roles because it's like a it's like a color palette. He he's got every color that you can imagine. So to say like, what's my favorite movie? You could probably ask me that at different times in my life, and I would maybe give you a different answer. Um, I can't not just say <laughs> Gone in 60 Seconds and Face Off are, are probably the, the top two. Um, but like, I, like, I enjoy some of his later movies, like the, the most recent ones. Like, I really liked Mandy, but I liked Mandy as like an overall movie. Not necessarily like his portrayal, even though we like we covered it and reviewed it and we laughed and like we got some good memories from watching it, but not really like his performance sort of thing. Um, Colorado Space was really good. Like I really enjoyed that. But again, it was Same. it was the overall movie. Um, I haven't seen The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent um, from the time. I'm they're going really, to see it like, on Tuesday. So like three days from now, I'll be seeing it. So I haven't seen that yet, so that could that could change my answer when I, I do it. But we'll, we'll just go ahead and stick with the tried and true uh, face-off. I'll, I'll say that. Right on, right on. Again, great choice. And I do agree. You know, there are some movies like – I feel like he's an actor who is performance guaranteed. He never feels like he phones it in. But, like, doesn't mean that every movie he's in. You know, his performance can be great, but, like, the movie around him is not so great. <laughs> I also really believe – that the supporting cast in most of his movies will make or break the movie. Like, like he's he's really, really good, but you know like those movies that are um, like Buried with Ryan Reynolds or Locke with um, Tom Hardy, like those yes, character-centric, yes. no one else is in, in the movie? I really don't think – I mean I don't, I don't want to say it as insulting, but like I think – having a movie just with Nicolas Cage would be weird. He'd probably pull it off, but like, I think he really, if you look back, and this is just my opinion, he really bounces off people that he's in the movie with. And mm -hmm. either the chemistry or what the characters are doing with each other or to each other, like, I really think that that uh, makes him sell uh, his performance a little bit better. So, you know, that's like, like Lord of War, for instance, it wouldn't have been a as good of a movie if Jared Leto hadn't have been the brother in that movie that he was. Like, uh, a lot of people give Jared Leto shit, but like, that movie was really great. But the the chemistry and the relationship between the the brother or the brothers right, that was right. kind of the movie. That was the whole thing. And if that fell apart, you know, you're you're kind of left uh, wanting a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's a good game of give and take, especially with a Lord of War. You, <clears throat> you don't, have, you know, if you got somebody pushing.
if you you know you got somebody pushing and the other person isn't pulling at the same time you know what i mean it, it's like a game of cat and mouse you know one's got to chase one's got to run i know that's a weird way to describe it but no that's, that's great and it's it's painful when you see it and it's obvious like when you're watching a movie obviously if you know a background or like it, it hit the news or a, a magazine like if you know that the cast wasn't uh copacetic and they were like at at odds it may give you a more entertaining watch because you're like oh can i can i figure it out but it also could be distracting you know right you, you yeah because you try to pick you try to pick it out like okay where did things go wrong was it this scene was it that scene yeah, because there's actually uh, an instance of that in this movie as well, in bringing out the dead that I'll, I'll bring up later on. All right, we got we got two more questions left, and, and then we'll get off into the movie. This one might be a little tougher, but then again, it might it might not. Uh, next question is: Do you have a specific dream project that you would like to see Nicolas Cage in, whether it be a sequel to an existing work or a role that you would like to see him play? Well. I never really thought about it, but in, in the news recently with the promotion that he's been doing with um, the massive weight – or sorry, un, uh, unbearable weight of massive talent, he was saying like uh, you know, he turned down Lord of the Rings and he turned down uh, The Matrix because he, he, he didn't want to you know, be uh, burdened by a project for that long. He, he wanted to take care of his family, and that was, I think that was really the first time that I spent more than a, a couple minutes thinking about, oh man, what would that have been like? Because it's it's kind of a, a rarity that we, as normal people, <laughs> as just bystanders, um, see like the transparency behind the industry and like people who have auditioned or were not cast. And like the, the movies that we love could have been entirely different if the studio or the executives chose someone else. So I, I didn't really think about it before that that news so i don't i don't know if i can quickly give you an answer without like um um uh, holding up the the episode but i would i would say like it would have to be a villain like uh, I, I i want i like nicholas cage when he's uncaged like uh like ghost rider is is terrible but it's it's a good bad movie both of them uh i agree, I, agree. I wish there could have been a third because the spirit of vengeance and stuff like that, I was I was down. It's just it didn't make enough money. But um, I like ridiculously violent Cage. Like most of his recent movies, and I haven't seen Pig yet. But like I I enjoy when he is able to be physical or um, uh, unleash something. I I don't want to have him be in a movie where it's just very subtle. A lot of um, minor details in acting a lot of dialogue um but i that's, short answer, if that's the case i don't know if you would like pig because that's you're describing pig to a t well then I, yeah, I need to watch pig then but um yeah it's 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 a beautifully made film sad film but beautifully made film I, i'd want him to be a villain like like it would have been cool to imagine a diehard movie with nicholas cage as the villain it's like that's the first thing that comes to my mind of just like a like a a pillar of movies that like everyone always thinks of and just put Nicolas Cage in there some, somewhere and just <laughs> can go, you imagine right. Nicolas Cage as Hans Gruber? Well, yeah. no, not that one. We got, you know, we but got, as a like Hans Gruber type character, I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean like, cause nobody could replace Alan Rickman. That's like, he or, owns that role. Or Jeremy Irons. Like I was just, I was no, don't replace those people. But 
We'll come back to that. That'll be a conversation we can have off. Okay. Well, maybe uh, throughout the course of the film or the the review, maybe something will come to you. Okay. We got one last film or one last question before we get off into the actual movie. Uh, What do you consider to be the most underrated Nicolas Cage film? It's a really good question. In preparation for this, I was trying to look at his filmography and again, Nicolas Cage is one of those people who just get a lot of flack. A lot of people feel like their opinion on his life and his decisions like is correct. So I'm definitely not going to throw my conjecture into you know how he chooses his roles or you know what his decisions are. I do feel like there was a turning point in his career, though, around uh, – honestly, around Bringing Out the Dead, uh, the turn of the millennium, where he – started choosing roles that were way more risky and it seems and again completely just my opinion from an outside perspective of knowing nothing about him personally it just felt like he cared more about personal achievements rather than uh again winning awards and caring about the red carpet and doing stuff for other people uh or a nomination so you know i don't think we would have gotten movies like matchstick men which is really underrated and it's, Love it's Magic really Man. it's a really good movie and i think people it's a good forget, uh, grifter type film you know yeah um i think a lot of people forget how good the national treasure movies are because they become sort of a meme or they just you know it, it became so outlandish because i mean honestly they were just like the fast and furious movies like so ridiculous in their conspiracy theories of like read it back <laughs> a little bit just a little bit yeah, it was just um, kind of like a more conspiracy theory-driven uh, Ocean's Eleven kind of film. Yeah, I mean, and it was good. But I would say his best ever performance, in my opinion, was in Lord of War. As as far as, like, a contemporary what an actor should do or, like, what a movie should be. But I I just got to give it up for movies like Con Air and Face Off and Snake Eyes and 8mm and gone in 60 seconds like all of like the movies that he did in the last five years of the millennium were like really different and really good and it's it's hard to forget those performances um so yeah i'll say it's just the last five years of the 90s it was my favorite movies thing (laughs) so yeah right on right on well that 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 works There, there are no wrong answers here All right. Well, we are done with our Nicolas Cage questionnaire of the day, and we can get off into our review of Bringing Out the Dead. And we will start with, as usual on here, we'll start with a quick IMDb synopsis, which is as follows. Bringing Out the Dead from 1999. Haunted by the patients he has failed to save, a monumentally burned out Manhattan ambulance paramedic Try saying that 10 times fast. (laughs) Fights to maintain his sanity over a three-day increasingly turbulent nights. And that's, uh, again, I guess, uh, I think with most IMDb synopsis, they're either way off the mark or concise and to the point. I think this is about as to the point as this movie 
can be. I think it's just about a group of broken people. Everybody in this movie is essentially broken. Every cast member. There is probably the least broken person is Patricia Arquette, and she's about as broken as a person can be in this movie. But between her, you know, addiction problems or family issues and whatnot, but she's. <laughs> I made a note here that Patricia Arquette as um, Mary Burke is probably the most. I'm using air quotes here that you can't see, but uh, the most normal character of the movie. And it feels like this movie, the first real note I have, besides it being a phenomenal cast, I mean, at the, I think that's, you know, something you mentioned earlier, Daniel, was that, you know, when Nicolas Cage has uh, a good supporting cast to bounce off of him, he shines that much more. And I think that's a perfect case in this movie. The, the supporting cast is just, I mean, I'm just going to rattle off a couple of names. And we got John Goodman. Ving Rhames, Cliff Curtis, Nestor Serrano, uh, Tom Sizemore, Mark Anthony. Uh, Mark Anthony, I don't know much about him. Uh, uh, I'm not, you know, into much uh, modern music, so I don't know a lot about him. But he really sold his role as Noel. I, I think he is one of the shining moments or one of the shining characters of this movie besides Nicolas Cage. So I actually kind of grew up with Mark Anthony. My my mom was a um, uh, a fan. Uh, he was in in the rotation of kind of the normal uh, stuff that I was listening to if they were in control of the the radio or the CD player. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean this cast is is pretty solid. I mean, <laughs> literally just having like John Goodman, Ving Rhames, and Tom Sizemore. And again, a lot of people give. Tom Sizemore a lot of stuff just because of his personal life, but his movies, for the most part, uh, are amazing, and his characters always bring your eyes to him. Like, um, like one of my favorite uh, movies that he's in is Saving Private Ryan. Um, but love him in Saving Private Ryan. John Goodman can like do no wrong. Like he's literally, he's like uh, he's just been tapped by uh, the Dalai Lama or, or somebody who's just got he's just gold like most of the stuff that he just does but you're right every single character here has some form of uh just broken parts of them and the movie is fairly simple it is not a complicated movie there there is a um a very beneficial thing of having a a movie like this in a small compact um chronological order sort of thing where right. you see a you see a small uh, porthole window in their life and yeah every single person is either broken down emotionally mentally they're apathetic to a point um there's a lot of chaos in the movie a lot of moving parts because it's it, it, it's was a um uh, a decision so that you would feel manic and you yes. wouldn't be able to feel comfortable in your seat. And it does a, a really good job in that. Plus, hospitals freak out most people. Right, uh, right. But, yeah, I got to give it up to Mark Anthony because it, it, watching this again, I forgot that he was in the movie. And honestly, in the 90s, he could have done anything. Um, if you're not familiar with him, like he was on top of the charts in multiple countries. And he was uh, attractive. He was young. He was popular. He had a good voice, and he could act. Like he did. If I don't know how many movies he did, but he did a uh, handful. I, m I remember him doing. Uh, 
Oh, the Denzel Washington movie. I was a. I can't remember the name of it right now. Oh, I just. I don't uh, remember that either. Man on Man on Fire. Oh yeah, yeah. About to but kidnap he, little girl, but but uh, yeah, that was another great I, movie. I think he literally could have done anything, and and the world would have been pretty okay with it. But yeah, he he. But he's also the. I don't want to say he's the lead character, but he's misleading because he's always there. I mean, he's almost in every scene because of just how his character is combining kind of the threads of the story and these nights that keep going. Um, but yeah, man, this movie is exhausting. And again, like in the filmography of what's going on, uh, just imagine what Nicolas Cage was going through because when this movie came out, he had just done Snake Eyes and Eight Millimeter. And man, <laughs> go on vacation. <laughs> do something like it's just it is a very depressing movie and like i mentioned before like um it, it doesn't it saves those climactic moments for very specific parts in the movie and it really pays off to uh to have these like explosive moments but i'm i know that you're going to get into a lot of those so well the way it plays out you know it is over a three-day period a thursday a friday and a saturday and there's those title cards you know that pinpoints every day and every day he has a different partner that he rides with and i think it shows what how he reacts to them is how he reacts to everybody else in the movie like you know he feeds off of them like like for instance like john goodman's character that he uh that he rides with larry he's just it's his cohort in crime for night number one and oh larry worries about is is eating he just wants to know where his next meal's coming from he's so adamant that he can't have beef lo mein two nights in a row <laughs> i love well, that scene it's also really cool of how they do that because it's kind of like the movie is easing you into the the co-stars because john goodman to me larry his character in the movie is the most normal i would say He's very blasé about it because, I mean, just imagine how many people have died and how many situations that you you see until you're jaded from this, you know, profession. But he's the most normal, and then you keep going into different nights, and as Nicolas Cage is going more and more uh, insane's the wrong word, but just unhinged. Uh, you keep going deeper and deeper into how crazy the co-stars are or how these other EMS workers uh, and ambulance drivers can be. (laughs) And it it just like um, uh, exacerbates the issue of the whole story. Yeah. And like each character, like each one of his, you know, paramedic buddies uses uh, a different, uh, I was going to say crutch. You know, to deal with uh, what they deal, what they see every day with the death and and just God, you know how bleak it must be to you know watch people die in your arms every single night. You I know, never John thought Go- of that. You know, but John Goodman uses food. Bing Rames' uh, uh, character Marcus uses religion, and uh, Tom Sizemore is uh, Tom Walls. He just uses violence. He yeah. fights back. You know, I didn't even more- realize that. Wow. I know, mind blown, right? Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely. And it's like Nicolas Cage's denial. Yeah, is this denial? And I, I think it, with him, it's he, it's the loss. You know, he lost the 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 girl Rose. You know, it's been what? Uh, what was the backstory? It was that she was a sixteen-year-old overdose that died? You know, pretty much because he could. You know, he was trying to save her and could not. And since then, everybody 
has you know that he's tried to save has died you know and i, I think he he's fighting to get out of this perpetual loop of, of losing patients you know and losing these people and then you got the whole uh this underlying subter or subplot of the Red Death, you know, which is the the new drug that everybody's using. Which I thought the name of it was very symbolic, Red Death, kind of like Mask of the Red Death. It's almost like a plague, and that's what the the drug was. So I thought that was a neat way of describing it. Oh, I'm I'm sure Martin was thinking about that, like, or or that, or the the screenplay writer, like they they probably had some specific meaning of why they chose that name. So you're probably right on the money. Right. Well, Paul Schrader wrote this. I uh, wrote the the screenplay on it, and Paul Schrader had wrote like, God, he's got like thirty writing credits, but he's written a lot of stuff like Last Temptation of Christ for, um, for Martin Scorsese. He's done like, you know, Raging Bull, you know, Taxi Driver, and and not to mention, I mean, like many many other films that were not by Scorsese. So, but he's a prolific screenwriter, and it was based on a book by an EMT. That was called uh, Bringing Out the Dead, but the the writer was Joe Connolly, uh, who based it off of some some experiences he had. And uh, he actually has a cameo in uh, the beginning of the movie uh, where he's playing. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the character. The the, the guy with the, the glasses, the sunglasses, Gris was his name. That was it. That will never take off his sunglasses. And he, he's always like, you know, the security guard at the door. He's, he's just a guy that walked, you know, Joe Connolly just plays a character that just walks past that gets led past by a nurse. But I like the fact that like, he's always, when he gets mad, he's always just like, don't make me take off my goddamn sunglasses. He's very adamant about that. Well, his character too, the security guard is the, the very minimal of comedic relief. Cause there's not a lot in this movie. Um, like once you start, you sit down and you start, you're, you're at the same kind of, uh, mood almost throughout the movie. Like it sets a tone pretty right off the bat because, um, Nicholas Cage's voiceover leading you into the movie is, oh man, it just brings down your, your happiness if you're having a good day. But yeah, the, the security guard and sort of the stuff that happens in the hospital is sort of, I don't want to say funny. But it's kind of lighthearted a little bit, and then and then it just throws you back into that ambulance and you know everything else that's going on. I did want to kind of uh, point out because we were talking about uh, writing and just with with Scorsese of how weird his time frame of making movies was. Um, Casino came out in '95, and Bringing Out the Dead came out in '99. And right after Bringing Out the Dead came out, he started working on Gangs of New York. So just a little bit of a context of like how busy or how weird um, Martin Scorsese's office might have been like within those time frames of years of like what he was working on. I think that's just super cool to just see that kind of uh, journey or that what adventure he was going on. Yeah, and there was something you touched base on. I, I agree with you there. But there's something you touched base on about Cage's voiceover. It is. It brings you down. And I think that was the very intention of it. But uh, I may note here, it felt like um, kind of like Harrison Ford's voiceover in Blade Runner, very detached, you know, and I think that was very intentional. But it yeah. also works a lot. Um, but yeah, great voiceover work. It's just some of the, it's just like, you know, it's, it sets the tone for the, this bleak movie that we're going to get, you know, that we're in store for that, you know, they're, they're, 
essentially is no hope. I mean, the move, the way the movie ends, uh, I don't want to get into the ending just quite yet. No, you're good. But the other thing too, is the other kind of thing with that is with the movie opening with the voiceover, obviously that sets the tone, but most of this movie is at night and that in itself just either the claustrophobia of either the, the hospital or the ambulance itself and then not seeing daylight a lot like it really really does a lot of stuff in the background that you might not even realize as a viewer that makes it so much more of a movie that it is better like the the more that you watch it or at least you know watching it more than once but that's why i think that it's it's as underrated and i'm glad that we're kind of talking about it because there's a lot of um things that were done that i just think are overlooked within the movie well you know the the effects work i'm not i, I want to know like i always you know love breaking down a movie and figuring out how they did what they did you know we've both been on sets and you know we've seen how you know movie magic works but like when he sees the ghosts you know when he's there's a sequence when uh you know he meets with uh uh cliff curtis that plays uh Cy, the the pimp and drug dealer and he has that moment where he's kind of tripping. He's walking down the streets, and the ghosts are reaching up out of the sewers, and he's helping them up. You know well, I, how that's. I do so know that because I forgot about that the first time I watched it, and this is actually the second time I've seen this movie. A lot of that was just double exposure. They they filmed two things at different times, and then they kind of overlaid the stuff um, uh, into it. And when they touch hands, or when they contact they would bring up the opacity or the transparency within that double exposure that's at least my theory of how they did it it's very nice. simple but it works because you're not thinking about the um the reality like how they're doing it it's like oh you're getting engrossed into the story and that's the other thing i really like of you know this is this is a ghost movie i mean for real this is a this is a haunting yeah. movie yeah like it, uh, it's a ghost this story. should be in those lists of like, oh, well, what's one of the best movies about a haunting or like a ghost following a character? Like this should be in that in that realm. Yeah, yeah, it should. Definitely with the, the Rose character. She is a definite 110% ghost. I mean, this should definitely, I agree with you. It should be listed amongst movies like people always want to throw around titles like the Paranormal Activity movies, but with ghosts and whatnot. Like this should be mentioned in that that same uh, that same ilk of film, yeah. and like when he w- w- looks and he's there's one shot in particular when he, they're rolling through the streets, which most of this movie takes place either in the hospital or in that ambulance, so it's so claustrophobic. But he's looking out and he occasionally sees you know Rose as a person that's walking down the street. It's like it's not her, but it's like another person wearing her face. But there's that one shot when everybody is her. When there's like 15, 20 people and everybody is they're driving past turns and I looks love at them, and they're all Rose's face. My God, it just makes a hair on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah, I love it. And uh, and that like there's so many layers of that because like with this like kind of being set in that new york cityscape where literally there's so many people that exist here you'll never see the same people uh it's just 
everything is so insignificant because there's so much compact into like one area but then the torment the nightmare that this person's living through and just seeing that same person that he wasn't able to uh intubate correctly and it's a nightmare man i would i would put this movie really close to um uh jacob's ladder it's not the same it, it might not be on the same uh, wavelength, but I, I would put them on the same shelf of like my DVDs. Like they would kind of be the same mood, like the, yeah, the, yeah. the same emotion, you know? Yeah. Now I got to make one point here. I, I will, I will pick on Nicholas Cage for a hot, hot second here because in the opening of this movie, there is a, is a point where he is giving CPR to a, a person. And it is some of the most piss poor CPR I've ever seen done in a movie. It was just one of those like, <laughs> it just it didn't pan out well. It's kind of like you know we we were talking about Mandy, you know when we did the Mandy show, you know, God, well over a year ago, and we were saying you know it's obvious when somebody doesn't know how to handle a chainsaw. Well, it's obvious that he didn't know how to handle uh, <laughs> CPR. Quite right, because it just doesn't play off well. And no. if there's really one, it's a very nitpicky thing. Because I'm sure he's doing CPR 110% better than I would be able to attempt it. So for me picking on it, who the hell am I? Well, the other thing, too, is I, I caught that when I was watching it. But I also remember something, and I'm just going to paraphrase, of uh, most like CPR that we see in movies is absolutely not correct. And oh, no. I think when he was doing it a little bit differently, even though it looked weird, um, it, it may be correct. I don't know. I've never been CPR trained except for when I had some sort of training for being a lifeguard when I was in high school. But that was a long time ago, so I don't remember <laughs> I don't remember a lot from that. Yeah, it just didn't look legit. It, it, like, And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's 110% legit, but it just didn't – it just didn't pl- play off well to me. I do have – a, a small factoid about one of the crew members. If if you're going to talk about the crew later on, or if I can interject right now, just oh, yeah, like you a, can go interject right now. Go for so, it. So this is a cute little thing because I was really curious because you know when we do these shows, we're trying to be as as informed informed as possible, and like we bring up notes and different stuff that way we can kind of like just be snappy with names or whatever. But um, I'm real big on cinematography at least for the the last handful of years, like I'm trying to be more appreciative of people behind the camera and the people who work on the movie. And the cinematographer who worked on this movie is uh, Robert Richardson. And I didn't realize that when I watched the movie, but he's done a lot. Like he is one of the, I would say most experienced, or I would say like people try and uh, by him like he's probably got a, a backup cue <laughs> of like <laughs> oh well let, you know i have a nine-year wait for him to be in our movie so like after bringing out the dead he did both kill bills the avatar or, uh, the aviator inglorious bastards uh hugo django unchained world war z uh the hateful eight um once upon a time in hollywood and then he just did venom let there be carnage and then the jfk uh TV movie miniseries. I skipped a bunch of stuff, but like you can see that in Bringing Out the Dead. There's a lot of really good choices and creative um, decisions of where the camera is. And again, especially because it's so 
compact and very claustrophobic. But there's some really, really interesting uh, movement choices and how the camera interacts with the characters. But th- th- I just wanted to interject with that kind of neat little factoid. Yeah, that, that was a note that I had. I hadn't written down his name, but like the cinematography is amazing. And something else I thought, uh, this movie felt like Scorsese was trying to do his best version of like what, I'm not saying he was mimicking it, but it felt like it was a similar style of what like Oliver Stone did in Natural Born Killers. You know, that ethereal lighting in the You know crazy, what's funny? Yeah. Is, is yeah, he was the, cinema, uh, the DP for that movie too. Oh, was he? <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, you're you're right there. He he was like in a few good men and a casino. He did uh, like literally. He's had a very storied career. So I, I bet you he was in Martin Scorsese's ear of like, hey, I know this works. Let me just have control of the camera. I've done this a few times. Let's just go with it. And yeah, it works. And it definitely um, keeps the pace. This is a very high paced movie that stops really quickly in certain points because it it tells you to pay attention to certain plot points but man is this movie like really fast and jarring and and dizzying but it's good yeah the 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 location of it i i think of what it was is that new york city is just you know known as you know the quote-unquote city that never sleeps and is so crazy and overstimulating not just the city but the movie itself is crazy and overstimulating but the like I couldn't. I couldn't live in that kind of atmosphere. Like I, I like living out in the country where oh. I, where I go yeah. a half a mile in any direction and I'm in a cornfield. Yeah, I've I've been to New York once and it was just Same. a visit. And I stood in um, uh, oh, what's it called? Where they Times have the Square? New York Eve. Yeah, Times Square. And been there was, once myself. It was crazy. It, it was the most disgusting feeling I've ever had. Just because I don't. I just don't know how to act with that many people and that many cars. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm used to rural towns and small little cities and townships and man, that was rough. So, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's rough, but this whole movie is rough. Uh, I think by the time we get from the, like the movie is, is perfectly cut into the three acts between Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And, you know, and Thursday, you know, he saves Nicholas Case. Frank Pierce saves Patricia Arquette's uh, father. Although he's been brain dead, I think they said for, he's been, you know, unresponsive for 10 minutes. And is you know, like after, I think it's six, seven minutes, you know, the brain starts to, you know, to, to, to die off. So you get brain damage. So, by, you know, and he's constantly seeing Patricia Arquette, Mary Burke at this place you know at the at the at the our lady of perpetual mercy i think it was the name of the hospital i think think that's what it's called and (laughs) if if a hospital is named something like that go to a different hospital just right just any life advice i can give on this episode uh drive to the next town (laughs) (laughs) that's just not going to be a good hospital yeah it might as well have been called the our lady of perpetual sorrow you know at that point because that place was god i i would just as soon die at home then they go to well, a hospital like that. It's also really hard to watch movies that are within hospitals while we're experiencing a pandemic. Like I know that it's kind of um, what's it called? Like um, oh, I can't think of the word. But it's just weird when the last two years of our life in this country, with you know 
dealing with stuff like that. And then trying to watch a movie to be entertained. And then you're brought into that kind of uh, thing. But yeah, that can be said for a lot of stuff because anything that deals with war and you've been a part of it or anything that deals with some other kind of trauma response or memory job or something. But I thought, I thought that I think halfway through the movie of like, man, like I hated hospitals before all of this stuff, but it's just, it's just weird within the context of, you know, what you're watching and just everything going on. But yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that you brought that up because, uh, I think, you know, if anybody can identify with the, having an aversion to hospitals, it's me, uh, considering how much I've been in and out of them in the last like uh, three to four years, you know, with all my heart issues. So that's why this was such a hard watch for me. And I, I'm glad I rewatched it because I think I have a finer appreciation for the hospital care that I was given. But at the same time, it was just like, uh, like when they had the defibrillator joke, when the Nestor Serrano is the one doctor, the ER doctor is just like, oh, we're going to put a defibrillator right here, or he can just take one home. Ha ha ha. I'm just like, I, I'm, I'm not laughing, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm totally not laughing. Not at all. But, you know, I, I, I appreciate what they were trying to go for, but that, that didn't bode well with me. But I love what it gets to, to make a weird segue here. There is a comical moment when we get to, when we get to Friday. And Frank just wants to be fired. He's trying so hard to get fired. He's showing up late. I think they said he had, how many times he had been late for like eight or nine out of 15 shifts. Or he, yeah, I think he, it was nine out of 15. And he called That's in something. sick for four others, you know. And the guy's like, I'm not going to fire you. I can't fire you. And, and is just kind of laughing at him like, no, you're, you know, there's no way. There's nothing you can do that will get you fired. Instead of firing you, we're going to get you Marcus, which is Bing Rames' character. Yeah. And I love Bing Bing Rames, you know me. I, I'm uh, not a religious person, you know, but like he's such an overly religious zealot and so overly bombastic. In it, yeah, it is in his uh, portrayal of, but like he he's a philanderer. Like he's he he's always um hitting on the dispatcher love, which I did not know. I never paid attention to the end credits when I had previously watched this. But I watched through the end credits this time. I did not know that was Queen Latifah as the voice, uh, doing the voiceover as the female dispatcher. Yeah. yeah. And and as another side note, uh, Martin Scorsese does the voice of the male dispatcher, which I picked up on immediately because as soon as I heard his voice, I'm like, oh, that's Scorsese through and through. Yeah, so the first time I watched it, I didn't pay attention to any of that stuff because I, I think the first time I watched this, I barely knew who anybody was other than a few people. But yeah, rewatching it, I was like, oh, yeah, it's these two people because you know we've kind <laughs> of grown up with them and watched them in countless things or listened to them in interviews or whatever. So yeah, I did want to comment. Like, um, I, I used to work with uh, 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 an EMS worker and a, uh, an ambulance driver, and um, I would say the way that they acted, or at least <laughs> the inability to get fired is it's pretty true from at least one perspective in the stories that he said, like, cause it's so hard to find people that have that particular uh, skill set and that experience. Uh, you don't really have like a pool of people that you can just instantly pick from and people, people need help. You know, an ambulance is the same thing as a, a casket. You need them every day. And, um, he, I mean, we didn't have too many stories, but I, I would feel like it was 
a very hard thing to either get transferred or to quit or to be fired. Like, <laughs> it, it it's just funny. Also, like, I wish there was more of those experiences. I know that that stuff is like the comic relief that you only need to sprinkle because the you water it down if you if you throw out more in that and it kind of uh, out of balances the movie. But yeah, it's a nice balance. There's not much comedic relief in this, but, but that's a small bit of it. Yeah. But man, that lead the owner of the ambulance company like who whatever his title is um his interactions with nicholas cage they're great like that that was just enough it's like a it's like a catchy hook in a song it's like oh just sing the chorus one more time and they don't it's like it was really really good yeah it's a it's a good push and pull with him um i think is the the actor's name was Arthur Noscarella. Uh, Captain Barney was his was his name, and <laughs> he just he just refuses to fire him. And as, as lovely as like his, his alternative, like oh, you want to be fired? No, we're just going to put you with uh, Marcus. He, it's like we're he, just <laughs> it's like he reminded me a lot of Mel Brooks. Like yes. that was the, the energy he was giving off. So oh, can yeah. you imagine an alternate reality where Mel Brooks played that character? That would have been something. I don't know. <laughs> hey, now you're getting me thinking. Imagine Nicolas Cage in a Mel Brooks movie. Oh, well, you know, they are. <laughs> hey, Mel Brooks is doing a sequel to uh, History of the World. So, you know, hey, if they're listening oh, out there, wow. the powers to be. It's like, yeah, it's supposed to be like a Hulu series, not to get off on a, on a weird digression here. But, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, he's doing a, a History of the World Part 2 or part three or whatever. I can't remember now, but uh, it's a Hulu series, but you can imagine like Nicholas Cage being in that, that would like, I'm putting it out there into the ether people. You can make it happen. Hulu, you got the money hired this man. I'm interested. I'm interested. Yeah. And another, I want to change gears here and talk about one other comical thing. And this also has to deal with the Friday night and Marcus, you know, when Marcus is always just, preaching fire and brimstone while always trying to be sweet on uh, the dispatcher love, which I think is a weird correlation. He's preaching about, you know, Jesus will save us all, but he's like trying to get in dispatcher loves pants every step of the way. And she ain't having it. I I love it. She ain't having a single bit of it, but when they get to, I think for lack of better term, the kind of the punk goth club with the one, uh, you know, emergency call they got and the guy had o- overdosed, but they nobody wanted to say that he overdosed because they didn't want to admit it. But they said that his name was I.B. Bangin'. And <laughs> it just, it's like, what's his real name? Well, it's, <laughs> this is why I wrote down. I.B. Bangin's his real name, a.k.a. Frederick. <laughs> it's just, Again, that was a great scene. Because, uh, honestly, this is one of like my least favorite Ving Rhame roles. I just, it, I just didn't really like the, the character. But... It was supposed to be kind of that uh, abrasive, different flavor within all the other characters that he has to deal with. But yeah, that scene and the the tag team that they were doing, the push and pull of this kind of like – it's like a magic trick. Like Nicolas Cage was doing all the work, and you know, as, as if he was acting terribly in a Shakespeare play, uh, Ving Rhames was doing his, uh, his little spiel. Is is really entertaining. Like it, it was almost where it was the movie was taking uh, itself away from the story just a little bit. Yeah, for a hot minute. Yeah, and I liked it. That was it was really good. It was like a it was like watching <laughs> them play good cop bad cop. 
you know, that's what it reminded him to me. It's just like, okay, it's like, while you're doing the speeches and uh, raising your hands to the the sky, preaching holy gospel, I'm just going to give him a shot of narca. and bring him back also got to uh mention a quick little cameo one of the goth kids or the punk rock goth kids that are in this scene is a, a actually pretty famous uh magician uh michael carbonaro very very young michael carbonaro uh was portrayed one of them and just the background i don't even remember if he had any uh dialogue or whatnot but this movie has a lot of cameos by people that were not quite you know stars at that I time i did not know that yeah like david zayas plays one of the cops in the elevator no i instantly saw that and it's yeah, again like like if you watch movies like this and you've already seen everything that they're in it's it adds such a, a different level of entertainment of picking people out that have went on to do other things or like exploded their career. And I saw him and I was like, Oh my God, he's in this movie. And then he's literally it's like, Hey, it it's like angel from Dexter. For crying like, out it's, loud. It's, so like, uh, it's cool. Yeah. But look also Michael Kenneth Williams, who passed away here recently played uh, the one drug dealer that was shot in the street. And at one point um, at the very, very end, we won't get into where her character plays into things until we get to it. But Judy Rees, plays the ICU nurse and she was in scrubs uh, actually. So it was just like, it was neat to kind of pick out the, these little bit players that, you know what I mean? That maybe didn't play, you know what I mean? Such big roles back, you know, then 23, 24 years ago you know, and see where they had, what, where they had risen to, where they, you know, had rot, nah, sorry, <clears throat> where they had risen to in their careers, you know, 20 some odd years later. So it's, yeah, it's nice to pick them out like that. But yeah, when uh, when I, I think it's, it's the, the, this movie doesn't really ever slow down. Like you had said earlier, uh, Dan, it has a very frenetic pace. But the one point where it actually slows down, and, and it does so in a good way, is when uh, Marcus is driving Frank and Mary to dinner. And it's probably about as sweet and romantic as this movie gets. You know, it's like the one point where the movie slows down enough because he... You know, Frank is always running into Mary, coming in and out of the hospital, visiting her far father, who is, you know, for all intents and purposes, brain dead. And they keep having to code him like what they say that one night they coded him 17 times. Yeah, like it started getting ridiculous, really ridiculous. Um, but that that made it more uh, impactful with the, the I guess the character arc, you could say, of the dad and both Nicolas Cage. But man. Yeah. Well, Nicholas Cage says one point in his uh, voiceover, he, like he said, I was a grief mop. And I love that phrase when he says that. But like he says, you know, I was a grief mop. And I, I, I love that. Just, just, you know, th just the idea of someone being a grief mop. It's just like a, it's so just blam right there. Like, like a mop wetting in your face. I would I would actually like to get kind of a not an interview, but just talk to someone who lives a life like this 
and to see what their opinion is of a movie like to take take away like the the horror aspect of it and you know boil down the plot to literally just have the mental strain of this job because really i mean nicholas cage's character is is losing control because he can't sleep and he's kind of doing uh sort of the machinist kind of thing where he just has yes. some sort of uh overbearing uh inability to forgive himself or to just let go and it starts affecting everything in his life and i'm just i'm really curious uh sort of a morbid curiosity of like how factual is that i know it is like i'm not saying that it, it, it doesn't happen but like it's one of those jobs that when you look at it outside like you never want to do that job that's awful why would you want to do something like that and always have to be right there with the blood or the just whatever that's on your hands and having to console or carry someone out of the house or it's ridiculous but if people didn't do the job the you know society would break down in a number of ways it's it's the same argument of you know a bunch of different type of of, of jobs but man does this movie really make you think of like number one to appreciate the people who do these kind of you know or in these professions but really think about how they are because again describing ving rames and tom sizemore like those are liabilities like especially tom sizemore's character and oh definitely you could almost parallel that with a police officer or you know i'm sure that this movie could also work with firemen um Sorry, that's not politically correct. Firefighters. Um, but it's such a good movie to have a conversation about afterward because it's it's so much uh, revolving around the actual world that we live in and not like a like a, a fictional place, a different planet, you know, a different right. it's not like it's exceptionally fantastical or science fiction. Yeah. Based. You know, it's, so, it's very much even though it's a ghost story is it's grounded in reality. Exactly. So this is definitely like a water cooler conversation kind of thing or something that you talk to your therapist about. But um, it leads itself really well into be able to feel some sort of empathetic connection with a lot of these characters. Even if you're super annoyed with them, you still feel something about how Tom Sizemore's character reacts to things. And like personally, I'm not a fan of Patricia Arquette. And and their acting, but their their character in this is sort of very real because mm -hmm. you know your whole world's destroyed, so you can almost kind of act any way you want to because a normal person who isn't a psychopath uh, they may just break down and they you know they may act erratic or just not be able to do anything and then obviously fall back into habits with drugs or whatever else that you know they're doing but it's just an intense it's an intense movie with like really hard subject matter uh you know uh spattered around the plot speaking of hard subject matter i'm gonna make a segue here there's a scene that that is at first somewhat comical and then ends very uh very hard when they enter the the, uh, the the crack house, the tenement building, with the two quote-unquote virgins. Yeah, the that's guy, the best part of the movie. 
when the guy is just like adamant that they're virgins, they've never kissed, they've never fucked, they've never done anything, but she is clearly giving birth. Like, oh, she's got something wrong with her belly. Like, you know, oh, you know, it's a gift from God. Like, uh, no, like e either your girl there is either slept with somebody else or you guys slept together and you're just like crazy and can't admit it. I, I don't I don't understand what they were aiming for. But, you know, like, oh, it's a gift from God. Like, no, when she's starting to give birth and there's like there's three legs and they're <laughs> they use the line. Well, that's one too many. And it's just like it's eerily comical at one point but it's also horrible to think because that means that she's giving birth to twins and one of them is uh, trying to come out at the same time as the other yeah and they give you know she gives birth the post scene with the twins when they're running in when nicholas cage is trying to you know do cpr on the baby yeah as that's he's rough. running that's <laughs> one of the roughest scenes ever committed to celluloid and i i am not a parent on any level, but like my heart just like sank. My, my, you know, watching that scene is so, so difficult to watch. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. It, it, but it's, it's good. It's, that's what I was, that's what I was leading into at the beginning of this episode because there's, there's, there is blood. There is some sort of, uh, uh, effect after the cause, but they really, really put them in small quantities. And the the birthing scene, and obviously, yeah, him walking in with that fake baby, um, it's really powerful. And again, the camera movement hardly ever uh, takes Nicolas Cage out of that scene. Like it, it, it puts both of them within the same frame almost the entire time. And um, Again, like with you and I, like I would want to be on the set. I would. I'm so curious of the preparation and what everything was going on and and how long it took. And I mean that those were great uh, efforts put to make those babies look real. Like that that was great. Like I, again, very underrated parts of this movie, especially cinematography and special effects and different stuff like that. Um, they they did very good. They made very good decisions of where they put their money or effort. Um, but I think that is the best part of the movie because um, right after that, I think he was already tiptoeing on the cliff, and I really think that that was their uh, the jumping yeah. point. Like I don't have a parachute. I'm just going to go ahead and just step out of this plane um, and <laughs> and just see what happens. Oh, but but you need those. I mean, that's what makes certain stories like really good. If if the character is unbeatable or, you know, they never lose a race or they never get hurt, like there's no there's no risk. Like the, you don't you don't have to you know what's going to happen. Like with a movie like this, you're kind of like I really don't know how this is going to end. Uh but the entire movie has been uh depressing. So it's probably right. not going to end well. Um and now so, yeah. this guy has a, a, a baby that's been stillborn that he's been running into like, like, oh, no, this is not going to end. Well. Yeah. Now he's going to have a baby ghost chasing him for the rest of his life. Like, oh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when I say hard to watch, it's not hard to watch on um, from saying for the folks that are listening. It's not hard to watch that it's done badly. It's just it grabbed. It grabs you by the cojones and it just gives him a good squeeze that is uncomfortable. And it's like, you know. I'm going to make you watch. So sit here 
and watch yeah. and don't blink. Well, see, that's also uh, a comment. And again, this is, again, just another blatant opinion from my perspective um, is a good exercise in restraint because they could have shown a lot more of that or been a lot more uh, invasive or crass with that. Yeah, kind of it could have been a lot. It could have been a lot more graphic. And uh, they didn't do that. And it's still it still elicited the same uh, response. So, um, again, a lot of these kind of movies, especially with a director and people that worked on this kind of movie that are legends, uh, there's a lot that can be learned of stuff like this and like how things work and how uh, certain things can uh, if you put attention to it, it'll pay off. And then maybe if you step off the gas a little bit and, you know, change the direction of where you're going, it can benefit the story or, or help. So, well, it's just like, um, for instance, I know going back to the noble character that Mark Anthony plays, you know, he's sprinkled out like he is almost like you said, a secondary main character. The movie centers around him somewhat. You know, he's always, you know, being brought into this place. He's always tied up screaming that he just wants water. And the doctor's like, oh, if you drink any water, you're going to die. Well, it's obvious that, you know, after you know, several days, he's drinking water. He's not going to die. I, I don't know if the doctor was being truthful with him or if he was just trying to sedate him in a way. But when you got a guy who's sitting there screaming because he's tied up, you know, and everybody, you know, obviously, when they when the other patient unties him or a, a day later when Mary unties him, you know, they're just trying to. I don't know, like, I think with the patient, he was just trying to shut him up. Mary was just, you know, she was, you know, I think she said that the that the Noel character was her brother's best friend, if I remember right, and that he had lived at their house for like a year, but that he had been shot in the head, spent three months in a coma, and then was never right again. It was like, well, yeah, traumatic brain injury would mean that this guy has, you know, problems, and they're not being addressed. And they're, you know, he's just somebody who's fallen through the cracks. And it's, it's obvious that a lot of these people in this in this movie, you know, the characters in this ER care about him, but a lot of them don't. They just, you know, it's just like another problem. They don't have a they don't have a place to put the bodies. They don't have a place to put the patients. They're just yeah. like it. it, it that, people that's just the get other, lost in. Yeah, that's the other reality check of the movie. That's again, it's depressing on multiple levels. <laughs> I was I mean, I, like, oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry. No, I, sorry, because I was interrupting you. Like, go ahead. I was just saying, like that. That is another part of the movie that's grounded in reality, where there's people like that, and especially like we were talking about with it being in New York, and there's so many people. There's millions of Knowles. Like, I'm sure yeah. there's tons of people that are like that that either have legitimate issues or they maybe have issues that they have put in their brain, and it's figments of their imagination. But you know it's it's real to them and they need help or they you know they can't get attention but then it's the people in the hospital who are literally saving people's lives bleeding out or broken or done whatever and it's like it's it's rough it's depressing on a lot of different directions there there was an instance one time when i had not when i had my first heart had a heart attack when i had had a subsequent heart attack and i took a an ambulance ride that took about 40 minutes to get to the hospital and the computer systems had shut down. They had no way of do, like running any kind of CAT scans, doing MRIs or, or even finding people's, 
you know, information. Everything was being done by hand, you know, handwritten notes, handwritten everything. And they had had an influx of people. I was shuffled off and left in a hallway on a, on a gurney for hours before I got a room. And I don't know my experience was nothing like the experience in this movie, but that was so disheartening to, to be like, okay, I'm in a hospital where they've gone back to the dark ages where they're running notes back and forth on, on handwritten pads of paper instead of like using the computer system, which was down for like 18 hours. And it was just utter chaos. And it was like very bleak. And I'm like, here I am wondering like, okay, is this the heart attack that's going to get me? Am I going to make it through this one? And I'm just like, ah. it, it was a scary Scary situation to be in, and I can't imagine being a person like a Noel or a Noel-like character that was in that situation every single day of his life. You know, trying to you know he was always trying to kill himself, always getting into some sort of trouble with self-harm, and always ending up in the same hospital with a group of people that just obviously did not care about him. And as as it was just again, like I said, a little bit of a hard watch. But I'm 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 glad I'm I'm really glad you picked this one because it, it kind of it forced me out of my comfort zone and I like it when anybody can force me out of my comfort zone a little bit. Yeah, understood. Yeah, but uh, to get back on track with things, there's one thing I wanted to talk about here is like when firing doesn't work, try quitting. And poor Nicholas Cage, uh, Frank Pierce tries quitting, and the the guy, the captain, doesn't let him. He's like, nah, nah, there's no quitting here. You can't quit. And he just like, now you're going to, now you're really going to get things because now we're going to give you to Tom Wells. And I think we got to talk a little bit now. I'm not going to comment on Tom Sizemore's personal life because he's had a very troubled personal life and that that's his tale to tell. But like you had said earlier, I like some of the characters he portrays and I like some of the work that he does in acting. He plays an utter in complete crazy piece oh shit in this movie he's a guy that i think is just like not so much a vigilante as he is just somebody who has a chip on his shoulder and is angry with the job that he has and angry with the life that he has so he's taking it out on everybody around him and he was just like gleefully when he sees noel he corners him in that ambulance and starts beating the shit out of him I hated the character. Like, I I mean, I thought his portrayal was was uh, spectacular. But when they give him to Tom Sizemore or to Tom Wells and poor Frank, it just like he had no hope before. But now his hope is like laced with formaldehyde, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because, again, the people he's surrounding himself with, he doesn't have any solace. He doesn't have any kind of closure. And that's exactly why that character is kind of written that way, I'm assuming. Because he just he can't leave like, you know, you're and he's almost I mean, I mean, you can leave. That's the whole yeah. thing. Like he you absolutely just walk away and never could come walk back. away. Yeah. But he still can't sleep. He can't escape what he's doing. So it's not like um, if he just takes off the stethoscope and the the EMS whites or whatever, that it'll just go away. But it just keeps getting worse and worse because he has to be around these people. and then. Yeah, then he just starts freaking out, and then we see the Nicolas Cage that everyone likes making fun of and parroting um, of just the wild kind of person, and um, it it works because he built up to that. I think the um, the progression because he he was at the beginning and through the half of the movie he's just very sullen, he's very slow in his movements, he's very methodical, 
um, it's almost like he's uh, sleepwalking. And then he hits that turning point around that that period and a lot of the other trauma that he's been dealing with. And then he's, you know, Nicolas Cage and be like, oh, there yeah. you are, friend. I haven't seen you in a while. Like Rage yeah. Cage moment. Rage Cage moment number one when he uh, wakes up from uh, taking those pills that Psy gives him. And he wakes up and he just goes completely rage cagey and grabs Patricia Arquette and drags her out of that drug den. Like, I was just like, yep, this is the, this is the birth of rage cage right here. But, you know, uh, you, you needed it. You needed the build up to it. And like, we got to talk a little bit about the, we talked a little bit about the, the effects and some of the cinematography. I think some credit uh, needs to go to whoever did the makeup for this. Again, I should have done my due diligence and made a few extra notes on this. But whoever did the makeup on this made Nicolas Cage's progression of makeup, of you know his eyes, his skin tone, the redness around his eyes and everything, just looking like a man who hasn't slept in three days. Yeah, it's is, really good. It's and the name, kiss. the name of that individual is Leon Weisinger. He was the makeup artist specifically for Mr. Cage. At least that's what IMDb says. And if you're listening to this, Leon, uh, you know, if I mispronounce your last name, I'm sorry. Weisinger. It's probably with a V. But yeah, it was great because nothing took you out of the movie. Like obviously his face and the darkness and the, the, the bags under his eyes, it's extreme. But that also correlates to my opinion of the cover, the poster for this movie is like – chef's kiss like it's one of the best simplistic minimalistic posters and it's just of nicholas's eyes and yep yep that's literally his whole story because the whole movie is in these mid shots or these close-ups and it's just his face and it's just his eyes and what his eyes see and yeah they put a lot of good decision making into making him look awful but it worked i think he probably looked the most awful is when the, the scene with Mary's father, uh, when he's standing over him, he's still like in the ER part. They hadn't ever even moved him to a normal room yet. And they said that they, you know, he coded 14, 17 times, however many times it was. And he's looking at him and Mary's father is staring at him and speaking to him through his mind. He's like, you know, don't do it. Don't you do it? Because again, he starts to code. So they have to, to zap him you know, use a defibrillator on him and he's like, don't you do it? And he starts cursing at him, you know, and he's like, you son of a bitch, you know, and he starts crying that it hurts. It, it's such a weird scene, but like, I think that's where Nicholas Cage probably looks his worst. Like it looks like his, he, he looks like death warmed over on a low setting, man. He really does. And that's like, I think the point when he, after the post uh, scene where he meets up with Cy in the drug den that Cliff, Cy, the character Cliff Curtis plays, and he takes those pills. One, I would have never trusted any pills that that man handed me. And, but, you know, he's like, it'll make you sleep for two hours. And it's like, yeah, I might have made him sleep for two hours, but he had nothing but nightmares for two hours. Yeah. But uh, I do love the line again. It's a, one of the rare bits of uh, levity and comedic uh you know little tidbits and this is when he's leaving with mary and he's kind of got her over his shoulder and he's carrying her out he's like hey you owe me 10 bucks for that 
<laughs> which we'll come back to later on when Sai is hanging out over the uh, the balcony impaled on the, on the fence, and he's just like, hey, you can forget about that money you owe me. It, it just, it is funny. I do want to comment, because, I mean, Cliff Curtis is one of those actors that, he's done a lot of stuff, but I just feel like with the industry and just, like, how things are, he looks different, so he's not really given a lot of, like, other opportunities or, you know, given his due. But he's really good. He's very talented, and I honestly think as small as this role is, I think this is one of my favorite roles that he does. I actually really like Psy as a character because usually when you have a drug dealer or a den boss or uh, uh, Papa Pills, like different nicknames for people who do that, who have like a, a safe ground, a sanctuary for stuff, they're really creepy, and they they have this like air of just perviness or whatever and like obviously he dressed they, they like seem a pimp. very skeezy skeezy that's a good word yeah but like the way he portrayed that character literally was like the the aunt that wants to feed you all the time that wants to take care of you it's like oh honey you got money let me give you twenty dollars like it just he just it seems seemed... like a grandma that just like oh are you hungry you look hungry let me make you something to eat yeah like I forgot a lot of details in this movie and rewatching it. Like I, I think his character was one of the least uh, disturbed people. I think his life in comparison to the other people, even though he kind of, he kind of alluded to it because people come to him with their problems and, you know, his life is probably pretty stressful, but in comparison, he seems pretty like level in uh in relation to everyone else that he has to deal with but um i i usually grounded for yeah. a character of that ilk and i really like his character uh, his the, whatever decision and whoever like uh was that final uh say and how his performance was like i th- i think that was really good now i have to go off on a a left turn here for a moment but he like again, yes, he's a fine actor. Something I just watched, uh, I rewatched with him in it that he's really, really good in is Doctor Sleep. He plays a character named Billy in that movie. If you haven't seen it, definitely I watch ha- it. I haven't watched it yet. I'm I'm <laughs> waiting on Rook to watch it because they they're they're a big fan of books rather than the adaptations of said books, and uh, usually in the ratio of how good they are, the movie ruins the book. So they're really hesitant about watching it, but I, I, I want to. I'm just I'm waiting. Well, let me let me give you this, and you can relate this back to Rook for me. Uh, it's one of the rare occasions, and I mean rare occasions, and you know what? I'm a big book reader. I love Stephen King. It is the rare occasion where the movie is just as good, if not better, than the book itself. And I'll leave you with that, and that's just... That's just one person's opinion here. Well, but, but it's coming from you, though, so that's got yeah. some weight behind it. So, okay. I'll let I, 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 I felt like I, I liked the Dr. Sleep book. I'll give a mini review here. I liked it. Didn't love it, but I liked the Dr. Sleep book, but I felt it was uh, misleveled, you know, is it, and in the juxtaposition going back and forth between certain characters, and they fix some of that misleveling in the movie. They make it a little bit more streamlined. To, a little more easier to swallow, uh, if you will. But he is great. He's got a very small part. He plays. Uh, I, I, I won't tell. I won't give it up. He just plays a character named Billy, and he's a great character in that. But uh, yeah, off on a little side ta- ta- tangent about Cliff Cur- Curtis here because I, I 
I love him. I thought he was really great, uh, and he was really good in a series that was called ga- uh, Gang Related that only lasted for one season. He played a character named Javier in that that was really good. Uh, I, I could go on and on for, you know, I could do an, an hour-long show just about how much I like Cliff Curtis. He's he's a great, great, great actor. Who knows? That may be a future future series. Yeah, or at least like a appreciation month. You know, we can have a Cliff Curtis appreciation month one day. There you go. But uh, anyway... I'm going to change gears back into the movie there. I had to go off on a side tangent because, uh, I, you know, I, I, I love Cliff. He's a great actor. And this is one of the first movies I remember, at least remember seeing him in. I know I, he had done a lot more, you know, before this. But, uh, you know, anyway, anyway, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into that another day. One, one day we'll actually do a show maybe just specifically on Cliff because I think he deserves it. But uh, the next scene I want to talk about, we're getting towards the la- latter half of the or latter third of the movie, if you will, because we're we're well past Thursday and Friday. And now we're into Saturday, the third day of this living hell that Frank is in. And, and this is the point when I'm going to say Saturday and, and him touring around with Tom is literally going from frying, frying pan to fire, to quote a phrase. Uh you know, when they get to the guy who was the, the suicide attempt, and I think this is the part where Tom is rubbing off on Frank, so to speak. And as he just starts going off on him, he, he literally tells the guy how to properly kill himself. He's like, this is the worst suicide attempt I ever seen because he had a bare scratch on his wrist. And the poor guy is... This is the one point where I felt like uh, Tom was humanized. He, you know, he put that little patch on his head and he's just trying to not sedate him in the literal sense, but satiate him and just tell him like, listen, you know, calm down. You watch this thing. This is going to draw all the bad stuff out of you. Then he say, even it was a, a special patch made by NASA. I think. It yeah. Was. See, and that's the, the back and forth because yeah, as, as Tom is, is rubbing off on Frank, there's kind of a, a, a transmission there because it, you have kind of, they're borrowing each other's traits for just a split moment. And right. I really think I may, I may be reading too much into it because you may have the same opinion, but it's almost like there's always something still left in someone, no matter how broken they are or how awful of a human being they are, that there's hopefully just some little small amount, like a, just a, a little shaving that's still left in you to just be nice, just do something. But there's also the other end where you're just one millisecond away from flipping out and, you know, throwing a table across the room or just, you know, unleashing just rage. The fury. <laughs> yeah. But well, I think, was... you know, everybody is one bad day away from that. Oh, yeah. But, you know, like, I don't think the, the Tom character started out being the asshole that he was. He gradually probably became that way, being being cold and anesthetized to everything that he's seen around him. Actually, to comment on that, I that's one of the things I love about this movie because we've we've kind of had a running well, I've had a running comment on a lot of the movies that we've covered where I really enjoy the lack of backstory or the lack of exposition. I like when movies don't fill out everything for you so that you kind of have like an open ended. Uh, book where you don't have the beginning or the end you're just thrown into the middle i like that we don't get some cheesy flashback of like tom as a young kid or we see the overall story of some of these calls that that come into the ambulance like we don't 
we're not given details of what happened or what happens to them after they go to the hospital because that's not what our characters see. They don't know what happens unless they're told. But like, I love how there's so many uh, strings that aren't. Uh, what's what's the phrase? Um, there's there's not there's open uh, circuits everywhere. Like there's nothing yeah. is ever closed. And it's very open-ended, you know, they don't spell everything out for you. It's just, I always relate it back to the, uh, the briefcase and Pulp Fiction. They don't oh, tell yeah. you what's in the, in the case. They don't tell you what, what, what was the triggering moment that made Tom become this violent man that he was, or, you know, I mean, the only person that gets that kind of backstory is Frank. Cause you find out you know, that not saving the girl Rose is what triggered his kind of descent into madness. Exactly. But that's where it, it spells it out for you that he's the lead. That's the right. culmination of the story. But I, I just really like that you never really know how John Goodman was before. You don't know what Ving Rhames' character was like, you know, or after. You know, there's just different things that some movies would give you more, and they would they would bloat or flood the movie with different things that really don't matter. And it it really showcases that that kind of information is privileged and as the character you wouldn't know any of that so it doesn't matter it's just not important and you, you have to deal with the information that you're given and i i really enjoy that uh, same same but yeah that scene is is uh, again is harsh and when he tells him this is the worst suicide i ever seen and he tells him just remember it's not a cross it's down if you want to do it right and it's just like no don't tell him that because next time then he'll make that decision. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, but he's getting pissed off. I mean, he's, Oh yeah, I understand it. I'm just like, (laughs) but but I'm like, no, don't, don't, don't do that. I understand why he was doing it, but like, no, he's, you know, I understand that he was coming from the the point of view of like, there's other people out here who really need help and we're trying to help them. And you're just kind of, you're wasting our time. Yeah. Yeah. You're wasting our time and our resources. Like, stop that. I really, at that point, I'm like, who's crazier, you know, Cage or Sizemore at that point? You know, at, at that point, Cage had flipped. And, you know, like like you said, they were, they were feeding off of each other. I think, you know, Frank was rubbing off on him and Tom was rubbing off on Frank, you know. So it's uh, – but when they get the call, this is coming up culminating towards the end here, one of the last couple of scenes, when they get the call to go back to the drug den and – you know, there's that underlying theme of the movie that's kind of a subplot that's always there but never in your face about the red, uh, the red death. I think it was called, and uh, you know, Curtis, you know, says aside, you know, he's like, I don't deal in that shit. He's like, I'm not one of these twelve year old punks that are dealing with that shit. He's like, only, you know, he's very adamant that he doesn't deal in this new desire drug. And I, I didn't get his point there. You know, he, he could deal with heroin, he could deal with cocaine, he could deal with pills, but he's not going to deal with this new shit, shit because. It's like the Wild West and the Cowboys. He's just like, I'm not going to do it. But, you know, he is... What was the character's name that had jumped over the side when they had jumped over the railing from the 16th floor down to the 14th floor? Uh, Tiger was his, is the, the guy. Okay, yeah. I wasn't yeah. going to remember that. I, yeah. I, I couldn't remember his name, but is even he's lap. He's there. He's impaled. He's got one of this raw iron fence literally, you know... Uh, through his abdomen and he's laying there hanging halfway over the edge, 14 stories up joking the entire time about it. And he's like, tiger jump. And he's like, but he was such a big motherfucker. He's like that. He fell and, and hit the, 
hit the floor. He's like, but me, he's like, I tried to be fit <laughs> and tried to be in shape. I impale myself like a fucking asshole. And I look when they're they're cutting him loose. You know, they the the SWAT are there. They get themselves anchored in, so in case anybody goes over the edge, they're they're clipped in. So is Nicolas Cage, but Nicolas Cage is holding on to him, talking him down. This is the one point where I'm, I'm not sure if you thought it was a weird effect. It just it just didn't age well. The the digital effects I just think were not correct at, at the time when the sparks are flying, and then the fireworks start flying. It, it looked extremely fake. But I don't know maybe if that was them trying to make it look I, fantastical I, and over the top. I don't I know think, if it was. I think that was it. I think they were trying to have a hyperbolic moment where it was. I mean, there was there was some religious undertones, especially with Ving Rhames. But I think, again, this is just from our perspective. Um, when this is released, if anyone would like to comment, or at least if you know kind of the perspective of Martin or whoever was the showrunner of like what was going on, I think that it was exaggerated for the spectacle of a metaphor, where he's still he's still in the shit, you know, he's still swimming in his his terrible pool of sadness. But it was he had finally saved someone or at the moment yeah. saved someone. And um, it was a little glimmer of hope within this uh, weekend of just nothing but death and stress and just nonstop movement. He's not been able to really just like shut his brain off. And it was I think it was some sort of. Um, a metaphor that maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel and it was kind of um putting an emphasis on good news however however fleeting the good news is but right. I, I think that is what how i took it so okay now that makes sense I, I you i kind of make you made that make a little bit more sense to me now now that i think about it and again there's a, another bit of i think very intentional humor when they're cutting through the 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 piece of fencing that's through his abdomen and they're like it's going to get warm it's going to get really warm and as he's laying there and he's like oh that's hot that's really hot and then it pops he falls over the edge and Nicholas Cage is hanging there you know over the edge holding on to Cliff and they're all comically kind of like trying to pull him up and it's like well I had you know we had you uh, anchored in Frank and Cliff was like well who had me you know who had me anchored in and he's like, I, th I thought you did it. Well, no, I thought you did it. And he's like, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Like, he knew. They didn't give a shit whether or not he he fell. It was, again, it was just another uh, another brief moment of levity for this movie. Yeah, which I, I think, think it, was it a, needed. It was a good way to walk away from that scene with just a little <laughs> bit of a, a smirk, maybe. So. Yeah, and then, you know, he's laying in the, the ER a few minutes later, and he's like, you saved me. And I think that's when... Frank realizes that the curse might have been finally lifted, if even only temporarily. You know, like you said, you know, he saved him at least for the moment. But then he has to, you know, even though there's no internal dialogue here, there's no, you know, even with as much uh, voiceover work as there was, there was nothing here at this point. When no, when Tom's going out, or Frank's going out with Tom. And it's clear that that Tom is like, okay, I want to find somebody. I want to, you know, we want to break something. And they see Noel going down the, the road, busting out car windows with his baseball bat. And he's like, I've seen this motherfucker all the time. He's like, we, we need to get him. We need to fucking beat him down. We're, we're like, we're going to break something. We're going to break him. And I think literally the whole time 
as you can tell by Frank's mannerisms and Nicholas Cage's mannerisms through there is the way he's looking around. He's trying to buy time and look for an out to not hurt Noel. Cause I don't think he wants to hurt Noel at all because he doesn't do go according to the plan of knocking, you know, Noel over. But when, you know, when fucking, you know, I'd have a drinking problem too, you know, if I was Frank, you know, you know, dealing with these people. And all I can say is after this scene, fuck Tom. You like the, the Tom character. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. he beats him within an inch of his life. I thought, you know, like I couldn't remember, you know, from the last time I'd watched this, whether or not Noel had passed away. He had died during this scene, you know, when they bring him back and they say, yeah, yeah, he's going to be all right. We're going to, you know, there's some bleeding on the brain, but, you know, we're going to, we're going to be able to take care of him. He's going to be okay. But like the way that Tom reacts, he is so disappointed in Frank that Frank didn't want to kill this guy with him. He's yeah. just like, you know, you either bring me the kit or I'm going to call in backup and I'm going to expose you. And he's like, oh, you're going to do that? Well, fuck you. And he just leaves him there. Yeah, I think he was he was hoping to call his bluff to maybe, you know, not go as as far as he did. But again, like. I don't think there was a full thought of the whole because it, it happened pretty quickly, and everyone at this point in the story is not normal, is not sane, is not thinking clearly. So I personally can't really think too far into it because I don't think there was much thought with the characters. I think it was just like no. let's let's just keep going and you know go with the flow with what's going on, but. To me, I was thinking that Nicolas Cage was looking at Tom Sizemore and just going like, well, obviously you're mad, but you're not going to go that far. And then when he did, he was like, you're literally causing an issue that we have to fix. Like, right. it's, the, it's the whole thing of, um, oh, my brain. What's the oath that doctors have to take? And The, the, the they, Hippocratic Oath? There you go. Um, it's literally – you have to you you can't do that you have to save him so it, it shows again that there's there's a glimmer of hope within uh frank pierce our lead character and we can still kind of back him as the audience and and not not leave him hanging without a support system because that's you know <laughs> the audience is a support system for the lead yeah and speaking of being a hope for frank we kind of get into our final scene here and I call it the, the Kevorkian scene, so to speak, when he goes in to see uh, Mary's father and he sits with him for a moment. And as he starts unbuttoning his shirt, he pulls it up and you see he's already got the the, uh, the patches on to hook up the, the, uh, the, the, the monitors to him. And he takes out the breathing tube. He's finally going to like give this guy some reprieve is basically an assisted suicide scene. And I was always conflicted with that scene when I had watched it originally, but like after, you know, being through some of the things that I had been through, you know, I, I kind of see why he did it. You know, I, I know a lot of people, uh, I've read some reviews of this. And a lot of people, you know, were kind of saying that it ruins the Frank character at the end, but I seen him almost like as a, an angel given mercy, even though I don't particularly believe in angels. You know? No, I, I was going to call it the same thing. I think but, it's the best part in the movie. Yeah, yeah, it is one of the best parts because it's just like the guy obviously, you know, was just going to be uh, a, 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 a vegetable. There, for, yeah. There's not there's not an easy way to talk about a subject matter like this. Like he there is no life. There is no future. You're you're going to be living in that kind of state and 
other people have to take care of you and you're literally bringing a group of people down that otherwise could be doing other things. Like it's, it's just a really hard factual reality. And that's, you know, and the movie doesn't shy away from that sort of thing. That's the whole good, uh, not good, but the a thing that this movie does well is it doesn't really pull away from that hard stuff. The, my favorite part of the scene and like, like number one, as, as it, as it's written or as it is like him doing the act of mercy killing the guy. Right. Right. Is in and of itself extreme like that's that's pretty high that's pretty high on the tier list of like decisions but my favorite part of this is he already had the stuff under his shirt he had already walked into the hospital he had already had the stickers under his shirt and on his skin like the the thought process he had already made up his mind well well maybe not made up his mind but he had already put in the steps to do this and it was like a methodical strategy of what he was going to do and he did it with almost no hesitation and very thoughtful it seemed and the way that it was just done i loved it like i don't it's it's weird like please don't just like quote me of saying like i love mercy killing but (laughs) right right the way that this was done and again the context of the movie the context of these characters everything that they were dealing with and this short window of time that we were living with these, these people uh, fictional or not um, mattered. And that was the best ending because it literally it just, it, it makes the movie for me. And it also, it reminded me of um, smoke and aces when spoiler alert, Ryan Reynolds pulls the life support from bad people. Um, yep, I yep. love that shit. I love that kind of, um, extreme closure it's like you're slamming a book together after reading it like you're done with it and it's like boom a very emphatic period um yeah it's not a soft close it's a hard snap yeah so i i really enjoyed the ending and it made all of the painful bullshit of the the the, the movie worth living through and i it's just again yeah he's an angel of mercy he made a, a conscious decision to do that because no one else was going to make that decision. And if he wouldn't have, he just would have been tortured in that hospital bed or his subsequent years being in a vegetative state would have ruined uh, Mary Burke, uh, Patricia Arquette's life and, and, you know, caused her more grief. And she probably would have OD'd again or worse because of, his inability to get better or to heal. There's a lot, there's a lot there. There's a, there's a lot, there's a lot to process. And I, I think it ends on, on a perfect note with, with that and, and him going to marry it and Frank going to marry and telling her, you know, that her dad had finally passed. And that last shot of them just, you know, laying in bed, sleeping. It's just like he finally, the, the two of them both finally could sleep. And I love it. It's, 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 it's a great way to end it. And that is like uh, that is our movie. Uh, I do have two little bits of unique trivia that I want to give out for this movie, and I know you got some stuff you want to you want to do about the box office uh, receipts and stuff like that. But one thing I thought was uh, very interesting is that Martin Scorsese 
and Nicolas Cage both rode with New York City paramedics for several weeks in pre- preparation for the movie, watching how they work, watching what they went through, which I thought was uh, great. And on a geeky kind of note, this, along with the movie Sleepy Hollow, was one of the two last two movies ever produced on Laserdisc. They were the last two movies produced on that format before the format went dead. It's pretty cool. It's yeah. Pretty cool. But that's uh, the two little bits of trivia I got. Now, I know you got some uh, some box office trivia from 1999 as well. Yeah. So uh, recently, within the last few episodes that we've done, I like to bring this kind of thing to give context of the time frame of when the movie was released. A lot of the movies that we talk about they they stand on their own. They're obviously uh, really niche movies that have a cult following, or they're extreme classics that you know no one will forget. But sometimes when we're talking about these or in reviews of movies or kind of explaining and giving our our thought on the the overall film ourselves and the audience may forget what other movies came out around that time frame. So I already kind of mentioned. Uh, Martin Scorsese's schedule. So Casino came out before this movie, and then after Bringing Out the Dead, uh, Gangs of New York was the next movie he worked on. But 1999, like like many years within the 90s, were packed. They had so many good movies that either ultimately became, you know, uh, lifetime classics, or we're now in like the 17th episode of this series like they just have sequel after sequel right right so the highest grossing movies of 1999 uh in order is star wars episode one the phantom menace i remember watching that movie four times in theater when it came out and i remember my brother uh, checking me out of school the day it came out to go see it that was great. <laughs> And then I saw it later that night again. That's a good um, brother. That's a good brother yeah. right there. Well, he's actually a piece of shit. It was a good thing oh. he did. He's oh, sorry. Terrible sorry. Dude. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry <about> um, <laughs> so, and then we have The Sixth Sense, uh, Toy Story 2, The Matrix. Oh, yeah. Tarzan, The Mummy. Like, you know, really good movies. And then these are just like. Uh, sporadic movies that came out that didn't really like do extremely well, but literally Fight Club, The Green Mile, uh, Big Daddy, Eyes Wide Shut, Cruel Intentions, Wild Wild West, The Boondock Saints. The Boondock like Saints. Wow, there yeah. was a lot that came out uh, in this in this year. And um, again, I like doing that kind of stuff just to give context of like what other things people were watching at the same time that they may have watched the movie that we're talking about. So, so, the, yeah. but the number one box office draw was Phantom Menace, right? That was number one. As far as what Wikipedia says, uh, it grossed, uh, $924 million. Uh, <sighs> God, so that's unfathomable amount of money to me. And I'm actually curious cause we didn't, we didn't really mention the budget for this movie in detail so uh, according to imdb for bringing out the dead estimated 55 million dollars to make this movie and uh let's see gross worldwide it made 16 million 16.7 so as you can tell it did not do very well but again if you haven't seen this movie if you're a fan of either or both Nicolas Cage and Martin Scorsese and the other people that are in this movie, please 
please watch it. Uh, um, you can find it on most streaming services, and if not, it, it it's an older movie, so it's not going to be an arm and a leg if you buy it somewhere. Yeah, it's pretty readily available streaming on, on DVD and Blu-ray if you're so inclined on physical media. It, it It's pretty readily available. Yeah. The only thing that I will suggest, and again, you can take it or leave it, you do need a palate cleanser after this movie. Um, this is just one of those kind of stories that we have talked about some levity and some comedic moments, but please don't think that there, there's a lot in this movie. If you haven't seen uh, Bringing Out the Dead, it is uh, very depressing. It is a dark movie uh, with uh, extremely forward, thought-provoking uh, plot points. And um, try and cue something up that will make you laugh or uh, – a cute animal video or throw on animal planet or something after this. Cause yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll probably need it. Watch something on food network is a palate cleanser. You know what I mean? This is something, uh, <laughs> boring and mundane or something comical. Yeah, definitely. Cause this will, uh, it'll, it'll leave a stain on your soul. And I mean that like in sort of a good way, because it's, like you said, it is very poignant, very thought provoking, you know, but, uh, it's something that needed to be done and needed to be said. I, I believe. And it's, probably the most underrated and under talked about uh, Martin Scorsese films. Uh, but that being said, let's go ahead and go into our final quick summary and rating on a scale from one to 10. And you know, as well as I do, uh, guess go first. I'll try and keep this short and sweet. I gave it an 8 out of 10. I thought it was nearly perfect, but it's perfect things are really hard. I don't give 10 out of 10s very often. Um, but I think it's I think it's one of the most solid performances that Nicolas Cage has given without going insane, without without memeing. Um, I think it's it's criminal that if you're an extreme fan of Scorsese that you haven't seen this movie. Um, and as far as horror, the genre, I think this movie is forgotten about a lot because most horror movies that are, are grounded within like the real world that doesn't involve a lot of supernatural stuff, doesn't involve serial killers – uh, slashers, like you know, if if it's not like one of those tentpole ideas, it's kind of just laid laid away and forgotten about. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I would definitely put this in um, one of those genre bins um, that match up with a lot of other uh, movies because this is uh, tailored to be a drama thriller, but it's it's a ghost haunting movie <laughs> yeah. with oh yeah with, uh, uh, some real world. Uh, issues so yeah eight out of ten really good not a movie i would like jump at to rewatch because again the subject matter and just the mood but i definitely do not regret watching this movie more than once in my life so i, I agree with a lot of what you said i'm coming in a little higher than you um i can't quite give it a 10 but i am going to give it a nine uh, the only reason why I give it a 9 and not a 10 is just because I feel like it underutilizes a couple of the supporting actors 
that I would like to see more of. Um, I think I'd underutilize John Goodman because he is just completely absent after he's gone after day one. And as so is uh, Ving Rhames, you know, uh, gone after day two. I think, you know, they could have had a little bit more of them, maybe a little bit less of the Mary Burke character. But I just felt there was a I always use the term misleveling there, but there could have been a, maybe something done in editing. But still, I think a, a nine out of ten is a, a great rating. That's something we didn't talk about was this movie has a great, great eclectic uh, soundtrack, you know, from you know, the clash to, you know, to Leonard Bernstein to, to you know, UB40 yeah. with Red Red Wine. Yeah, I feel bad for not even mentioning it because, to be honest, like sometimes movies are remembered for their music. And personally, the music took a, a very far backseat. Like it was outside of the car for me. Like a lot of the the stuff that I remember from this movie is literally the, the sound design and obviously the acting and the dialogue, but yeah, I literally didn't even think about the music the entire time we've been talking about this movie. But you're you're right. I mean, it had a pretty banging soundtrack. But I mean, when it starts off with the Rolling Stones, I mean, you know, you, you know, you're watching a Scorsese movie. That's where all the money went to the Rolling yeah. Stones. Yeah, <laughs> right, to their, their music. But, I mean, it's got a lot, a little bit of everything. I think we also failed to mention that this movie takes place in the '90s. You know, I mean, it it takes place, you know, I mean, it was made in 99, but I mean, it takes place in the early 90s when a lot of this music was popular. Jane's Addiction, R.E.M., but, you know, a lot of classic stuff like Johnny Thunders, Frank Sinatra, Van Morrison, uh, The Who, you know, and even a couple of songs by Mark Antony in it. You know, I think it's probably the only music is that I'm actually familiar with, but it's a great soundtrack. It's got that ethereal lighting that... Uh, Scorsese is always known for there's always some overhead lighting that feels like it's a glow from the heavens you know that uh, is great the cinematography is top notch uh the the acting is uh, you know is phenomenal I mean everything about it is you know near perfection so I give it a nine out of ten but that being said, I think we can put a pin in this one for the evening. Uh, do you got anything coming up that you want to plug? I know you guys got some shows you're getting ready to do here real soon. Uh, well, yeah, and depending on whenever this is released, it may be after that fact. Um, yeah, true, but no, true, true. But no, the only thing that I'll say is if you're listening to this, we appreciate you. Please share and plug this with your friends or other movie fanatics that you enjoy. Um, if our opinions don't align with yours, talk to us. Don't just, you know, ignore us and, you know, do something like that. Like, let's have a discussion. If this movie made you think of another movie that you would like our opinions to be plastered on, let us know. We would we would like to try and do another one. I'm just happy that I, I'm a, a re reoccurring guest here. I like talking to you. Yeah, I, I always love discussing these movies with you because you, you make me step out of my, my comfort zone with most things. You know, and get into, you know, movies that would be like, ooh, I didn't think of that one. I wouldn't have thought of that one. So I appreciate you, sir. And uh, and I agree with what uh, Dan just said here, folks. If you're listening and you like what we're talking about, please, you know, click on the links, like them, subscribe to our Podbean uh, channel. You know, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, soon to be on uh, Twitter, and probably maybe even uh, TikTok if I can um, – get myself up up to date on that kind of stuff we're opening up our avenues here of getting to you but we're available anywhere fine podcasts are sold you can get us on pandora stitcher spotify 
Amazon, Apple, you name it, we are there. Just type in Cinema Degeneration and you will find us. And, and again, like Dan just said, if you if you agree with us, that's great. Let us know maybe what you would want to hear from us next. What would you like us to review next? And if you disagree with us, let us know why. You know, open up, open up. Uh, you know, a discussion with us. We'd appreciate that. But that being said, uh, Dan, I want to thank you very much for giving me a couple hours on this uh, Saturday morning to, out of your time. I know you're busy with editing and getting some stuff done, so I always appreciate you coming on the show when I know you're busy as all get up. No, if I can, I'll always do an episode with you, Cam. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. And folks, I want to thank you as always for listening. You have been listening to Cinema Degenerations, Brilliantly Insane, The Age of Cage, and we have been reviewing and dissecting Bringing Out the Dead from 1999. Okay, what happened? Please tell me he's going to be all right. No, he did. Buggin', we just signed our first record deal. Look, he did, son. Ain't nothing we can do about it. Come on, Frank, that's it. What do you mean he's dead? He's not dead. It's a heroin overdose. Let's break out the Narcan. He's dead unless you folks want to stop bullshitting me and tell it straight. 